Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Get Sleepy, where we listen, we relax, and we get sleepy. I'm your host, Thomas and it's a pleasure to have your company. Tonight, Elizabeth will be telling us all about the incredible life of the writer and illustrator Beatrix Potter. Through her words and art, Beatrix introduced the world to beloved characters like Squirrel Nutkin, Jemima Puddleduck, and of course, the mischievous little bunny, Peter Rabbit. If you enjoy listening to Elizabeth's soothing narration tonight, remember to check out our sister podcast, The Sleepy Bookshelf, which she hosts. It features many classic books and tales, perfectly adapted to help you fall asleep. Just search for The Sleepy Bookshelf wherever you listen to podcasts. Tonight, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life can be full of challenges, especially in times of change. Sometimes it really feels tough to face those challenges and look after our mental health. That's where BetterHelp comes in. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills. Having used BetterHelp myself, I know how powerful it is to have a sympathetic, neutral ear whom you can get things off your chest to. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched over 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist, and if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash get sleepy. That's betterhelp.com slash get sleepy. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to hear more episodes, we'd absolutely love for you to try Get Sleepy Premium. And with the gifting option, you could even add it to your own wish list this festive season. On the premium feed, 
you can enjoy over 450 full-length episodes completely and entirely ad-free. Plus, every Thursday, we release a new bonus episode just for our premium supporters. Like tomorrow, where we'll be returning to a special home on the North Sea coast of England to join Kate and her cat, Whiskers. Your support means so much to us and is essential in helping us to keep the show going. To find out more and enjoy a seven-day free trial, go to getsleepy.com support or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks so much. So, my friends, take a moment to get relaxed and make yourself comfortable. Try and relax your spine from your neck to your tailbone. Notice how your spine lengthens as you relax it. Feel the space that opens up between each vertebra. Sense how your body responds by sinking deeper into bed. Soften your muscles and relax your face. Now that you're comfortable, slow your breathing. Inhale deeply. Hold the breath for a moment or two. And exhale. Try to extend the length of your exhale a little longer than that of your inhale. And keep breathing like this, finding a rhythm that works perfectly for you. As you continue to breathe, calmly and evenly, let your eyes gently close as I hand over to Elizabeth. Imagine you are standing in the well-kept garden of a grand brick mansion a long time ago. This is where our story begins. This mansion is located in Kensington, London. The lawn is well manicured. The tall, old oak trees provide shade from the warm summer sun. And the leaves of the elm trees rustle softly in the breeze. The flower beds are a pleasing tangle of daisies 
primroses, buttercups, and pansies. A genteel rose garden boasts flowering shrubs with roses in a riot of pinks, creams, reds, and buttery yellows. If you sniff the air, you can smell the roses' sweet scent. The year is 1866. Kensington is a far cry from the bustling inner city suburb familiar to Londoners today. Back then, the district sat on the outskirts of the city, and though many of its streets boasted gracious homes, in some ways it still resembled a rural village. Beyond a clutch of comfortable, middle-class homes lay forests and open fields. Some of the fields were still used as common farmland, where local families brought their sheep and cattle to graze. In fact, if you listen, you can hear the trilling of the birds in the forest and the distant bleat of sheep. But there are no sheep or cattle in this very respectable garden. Beatrix Potter was born on July 28, 1866, and for the first 47 years of her life, she lived in this house at 22 Bolton Gardens, Kensington. She was born into a comfortably middle-class family, originally from the area around Manchester, a city in the north of England. It was, at the time, one of the world's first great industrial cities, famed for its skyline of red brick factories and textile mills. Beatrix's paternal grandfather was the proprietor of a calico printing works. Her maternal grandfather, the proprietor of a cotton mill. Her own father was a London barrister. Despite their upper middle class respectability, an artistic streak ran through the family. Her mother, Helen, was a keen embroiderer and loved to spend evenings dipping her paintbrush into her pot of watercolors and producing moody scenes of the windswept landscapes of her childhood or more temperate scenes of her London garden. Helen would later gift her paintbox to Beatrix. Beatrix's father, meanwhile, was an avid devotee of a relatively new artistic discipline, photography. Beatrix would watch, fascinated 
as her father set up his camera on his tripod, then disappeared behind the dark cloth which shrouded the camera and blocked out all the light. She waited eagerly outside the door of his dark room to see how the final photograph appeared. He loved to take portraits of her, and when he was born six years later, of her younger brother, Bertram. She didn't even mind standing completely still for minutes at a time, so that her likeness in the final photograph would be clear, not blurry around the edges. Following her father's influence, Beatrix would grow up to become an accomplished photographer in her own right. Like many Victorian girls, Beatrix was sheltered from much of the world. She and Bertram were educated privately by a series of governesses. Because Beatrix was a girl, she wasn't expected to take much interest in serious subjects like Latin or mathematics. Instead, she was encouraged in more ladylike pursuits, playing music, sewing, and, of course, the watercolour painting, which would eventually make her name. However, her parents didn't discourage her from those serious subjects when she showed an interest. She took to the natural sciences, and while surprised, her parents were quite encouraging for the time. Beatrix and Bertram both loved spending long days in the garden. They rambled through the flower beds and, when they were permitted, went beyond the confines of their own cottage garden and into the fields and forests of Kensington. Surrounded by trees and rocks, mottled with lichen and moss, with cool, damp soil underfoot and a bright tapestry of birdsong weaving through the branches above them, I felt very far from the city. Here, they filled their pockets with treasures to take back to the schoolroom. Birds' nests and shells, leaves and rocks. They carefully transported live creatures back to the schoolroom too. And soon, one corner of the room was a dedicated menagerie where salamanders and newts swam in bowls. Mites nibbled at the edges of their sawdust nests. Frogs riveted, worms slithered, and tortoises chewed thoughtfully on crisp green lettuce leaves. Beatrix and Bertram both delighted in observing their creatures and sketching their likenesses. The pair made etchings, crayon drawings, 
and paintings of the animals in their care. At weekends, Beatrix and Bertram went farther afield. They visited Kensington Gardens, wandering through its gracious rose gardens, stopping to sail toy boats at the round pond in the garden centre. On hot, sunny days, they sometimes went swimming, or they ventured to Regent's Park in the heart of the city where the London Zoological Gardens could be found. They joined the thronging crowds, dressed in their best going-out clothes, all eager to catch a glimpse of animals from faraway lands. Here, Beatrix would have admired the elephants and orangutans and the jewel-coloured parrots in the aviary. While the monkeys and elephants always drew crowds of excited onlookers, Beatrix also sought out the less popular animals. She loved to examine the intricate scales of the rattlesnakes that draped themselves over rocks in the reptile house and the frilled lizards that watched her almost as intently as she watched them through their gleaming eyes. Far better than their garden in London and the zoo at Regent's Park, though, was the wild countryside of England's Lake District and Perthshire, Scotland, where the Potter family often went on holidays. In Perthshire, Beatrix would have walked across wild moors and through thick forests where rivers and waterfalls tumbled over mossy rocks. In the Lake District, the Potters stayed at Lake Windermere, a glacial lake nestled in the district's green, rolling hills. Beatrix would have wandered the lake's edge and even rode out to visit the islands scattered across the middle of it. Beatrix loved the feeling of freedom that came with roaming across the countryside for hours. In the lake district, she learned to ride a horse and trap and then she could travel to even further-flung destinations. At the end of every holiday, the Potter family returned to their comfortable life in London. Beatrix always felt her heart belonged to those wilder, less cultivated landscapes, and she would return to them time and time again. When Bertram was sent to boarding school to continue his education, Beatrix was left alone with her governess and ladies' companion, Annie Moore. Annie encouraged Beatrix's artistic passions, but Beatrix's interest in the sciences also flourished 
she filled sketchbook after sketchbook with highly detailed, biologically accurate depictions of flora and fauna. In her late teens, Beatrix was accepted to the National Art Training School, where she took courses in drawing and painting. Beatrix was a diligent student, spending many afternoons copying the work of master painters like Constable and Van Dyck of the Royal Academy's exhibition. She was skeptical about some of the advice her teachers gave her. She felt their insistence on doing things the right way sapped all the life and energy from her drawings. Although she devoted herself to art, Beatrix was still passionate about science. In fact, she found ways to bring her two passions together. She could often be seen in the grand halls of London's Museum of Natural History, bent over her sketchbook as she made an exacting copy of whichever specimen had caught her eye that day. In her late teens and early twenties, Beatrix drew insects, fossils, moths, birds, mosses and lichens. But more than anything else, she sketched mushrooms. She collected the specimens herself, foraging through the forest on misty autumn days. With the help of a pocket knife, she lifted the most beautifully colored and intricately structured examples carefully from the mossy earth where they grew and carried them back to Bolton Gardens where she observed them through the lens of a wondrous new invention, a microscope. She taught herself the techniques for proper botanical illustration. Soon, her work caught the eye of Sir Charles Mackintosh, a leading figure in British mycology, as the study of fungi and mushrooms is called. With Mackintosh's encouragement, Beatrix began to study how mushrooms reproduce, a subject about which little was known. Some scientists had suggested that they reproduce through their spores, tiny cells which are generated by the mushroom cap, drop down into the soil where, when conditions are right, they connect with other spores and finally generate new mushrooms. These theories were widely dismissed but Beatrix thought there might be something to them. She conducted various experiments, germinating her own mushroom spores and trying to establish under which circumstances these spores might reproduce. She even published a paper on the topic titled 
on the germination of the spores of Agaricaceinae. She hoped to present the paper to London's Linnean Society, an organisation of eminent botanists. There was just one problem. The Linnean Society only accepted male members. Despite Beatrix's best efforts, they refused to even discuss a woman's research findings. Now it is widely accepted that mushrooms do reproduce through their spores. What's more, Beatrix's botanical illustrations are still studied today thanks to their scientific accuracy. A scientific career might have been closed off to her, but that couldn't dampen Beatrix's love of nature. She continued to sketch the animals she observed in her London garden, in the Lake District, and in the Scottish Highlands. And while Beatrix was a rigorous scientist, who captured the flora and fauna she saw around her with astonishing accuracy. She also felt that the English countryside was filled with magic. After a walk through the Lake District, she is said to have observed that the moors felt like they belonged to the fairies. This intertwined interest in science and nature and sensitivity to magic and enchantment would go on to define her unique artistic style. In September 1893, she enclosed some of these drawings in a letter to Noel Moore, the son of her former governess, Annie. The drawings showed a young rabbit. To amuse Noel, Beatrix wrote a little story to accompany the drawings. She called the rabbit Peter. In the story, the mischievous Peter sneaks into the garden of Farmer McGregor and feasts on the farmer's vegetable patch even though his mother has sternly warned him not to. When Farmer McGregor catches sight of Peter, Peter runs away and gets stuck in a watering can. Eventually, he wriggles free and escapes. That night, his sisters, Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail enjoy a supper of blackberries and cream. But Peter, who has overindulged on Farmer McGregor's radishes and lettuce, has a stomachache and has to drink chamomile tea instead. Noel and his siblings were delighted with the story. His mother, Annie, suggested Beatrix publish it. Beatrix worked at the story a little more 
and refined her illustrations with a view to finding a publisher. The first publisher she approached rejected her. So did the second. All in all, six publishing houses turned down the chance to take her story. While many editors enjoyed her work, none were prepared to publish a book that fit Beatrix's very exacting stipulations. She wanted the book to be published in a smaller format than was usual at the time. She insisted that smaller books would be easier for children's small hands to hold, and because she wanted her story to be affordable for all children. She proposed only including a select few colour illustrations. The rest would be rendered in black and white, which were far cheaper to print. At last, Beatrix printed off a small run of copies which might be shared with friends and family. In 1902, the publisher Frederick Warne saw Beatrix's little book and was charmed. Together, they prepared the story for commercial publication with colour plate illustrations. The tale of Peter Rabbit was an immediate success. The story captivated readers, and its illustrations, which blended Victorian whimsy with Beatrix's scientific eye for accuracy, caused a sensation. The public was delighted with the young rabbit, Peter, who dressed in a natty blue velvet jacket, and his sisters, Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail, who wore demure red capes. In partnership with Warren, Beatrix was soon producing two storybooks a year. Following on from Peter Rabbit, she wrote The Tailor of Gloucester and The Tale of Squirrel Nutkin. In all, she would publish more than 20 children's books in which perfectly realistic animals dressed in the latest Victorian fashions and went on adventures through the picturesque moors, dales, and forests of the English countryside. For most of her career, she worked very closely with her editor, Frederick's son, Norman Warren. Their relationship did not stay purely professional. Beatrix had always been a shy woman, more at home in the forest than she was in the drawing rooms of Victorian society, a woman who counted more pets than people among her friends. In the gentle, soft-spoken Norman, she found a kindred spirit, someone who truly understood her and encouraged her ambitions. The two fell in love. 
Beatrix's family did not approve of the match in pursuing a career as a writer and illustrator. Beatrix was already defying social conventions. Her parents never fully supported her career. They certainly couldn't support their only daughter becoming involved with an editor. They viewed Norman as a tradesman, well below their own class. But Beatrix wasn't deterred. She and Norman wrote each other long letters professing their love. Norman even proposed to Beatrix in a letter, and Beatrix accepted without hesitation. She was prepared to defy her parents' wishes. After all, she loved Norman, and unusually for a woman at that time, Her commercial publishing success meant she had the financial means to make her own decisions in life. But their longed-for marriage was not to be. Less than a month after he proposed, Norman passed away. Beatrix received the news by telegram while she was on holiday in Wales with her parents. She went into deep mourning. When the clouds of grief passed, Beatrix decided to do something rather unusual for a woman of her class. With the substantial royalties she had earned on the tale of Peter Rabbit, Beatrix bought a property of her own, Hilltop Farm, a small cottage in the Lake District. Although she continued to live with her parents in Kensington, she travelled to the cottage often. She threw herself into renovating the shabby 17th century stone house and even turned it into a working farm where she bred Hardwick sheep. She was very good at it and would go on to be elected the first female president of the Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association. Beatrix often retreated to Hilltop to work on her books. She found the wild nature that surrounded her there inspiring. The cottage's pleasantly overgrown gardens with climbing flowers and a vegetable patch where carrots and rhubarb and cabbage grew, often crept into her distinctive watercolour illustrations. So, too, did the views of the Lake District that she enjoyed from her hilltop perch. Delicate, grey-green fields and moors, tumble-down farms, and higgledy-piggledy stone fences and silvery skies where heavy clouds almost always seemed to threaten rain. Some of Beatrix's best-loved characters came to life in her studio at Hilltop. Characters like the scatterbrained Aylesbury Duck, Jemima Puddle Duck, 
who is forever forgetting where she has laid her eggs. And Tom Kitten, the mischievous cat who wreaks havoc on his mother's tea party. During her visits to Hilltop, Beatrix got to know the residents of the nearby village. One resident in particular became a treasured companion, local solicitor William Helitz. The two married and moved into Castle Cottage in the prosperous town of Near Sori. Here, Beatrix wrote, drew, and painted. She also developed a deep admiration for the region's traditional farming methods. She and William bought a few acres of farmland, and Beatrix expanded her flock of sheep. Although agriculture in England was becoming increasingly industrialized, Beatrix insisted on doing things the old-fashioned way. As a result, her flock thrived. Soon, she expanded her land holdings. In her fifties, as her eyesight began to fade, she concentrated more and more energy on tending to her own farm and to safeguarding the welfare and interests of other local farming families. She also did something that struck her farming neighbors as a little odd. There were large tracts of her land that Beatrix didn't farm. As she acquired more and more land, she decided that some of it should be left wild and untouched. It was her way of trying to preserve the uniquely rugged beauty of her adopted home. In 1930, Beatrix published what would be her last book, The Tale of Little Pig Robinson. It tells the story of a gullible young pig who is sent to market by his grandmother. At the market, he meets a sailor who invites him on an ocean voyage. Pig Robinson immediately accepts the sailor's offer, excited at all the adventures he will have at sea. But the sailor has tricked him. He's only invited the pig aboard the ship so that the cook can serve the luckless pig to the crew for dinner. Happily, Pig Robinson escapes and finds his way to a tropical island where he makes friends with the owl and the pussycat from the old nursery rhyme. Although it was the last book she ever published, it was based on one of the first stories Beatrix ever wrote, back when she was still a young girl, spending hours in the garden at Kensington, sketching the birds and insects and mice and squirrels she spied there in her notebook. In 1943, 
At the age of 77, Beatrix died. Her legacy lives on in the many books she published. Although they have been reprinted many times, they are still just the right size for little hands to hold. And the charming yet precise illustrations inside continue to enchant generation after generation. Her legacy lives on, too, in the vast acres of land she worked tirelessly to preserve throughout the Lake District. On her death, Beatrix gifted 4,000 acres of land to the National Trust, an organization that works to preserve the British landscape. Thanks in part to Beatrix's generous bequest, visitors to the Lake District experience a landscape largely unchanged from the scenes depicted in Beatrix's distinctive illustrations. In summer, they might see the rolling green moors unfurled under a blue sky. Ribboning through the moors, the glittering streams and tiny waterfalls. The trees that dot the landscape are in full leaf. And the gardens of the farms and cottages that stand in the fields are overgrown with a profusion of flowers and vegetables. In autumn, they might see the moors turn a heathery purple and woodland copses burnished in autumnal colors, orange, red, copper, rust. With every brisk flurry of wind, they would see bright leaves spinning towards the earth. In winter, they might see frost-rimmed fields punctuated with bright bursts of green and red from the holly bushes that grow wild in the region. The thick, white snow that lies along the moor is disturbed only by sleigh marks or perhaps the tiny paw print of a rabbit or two. And in spring, they would see a carpet of wildflowers under a gentle pastel sky. hazy wash of colour could have been painted from the brush of Beatrix Potter herself.